You're listening to the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast. I'm the host, Angus Stewart, and we have a guest today. Well, he's not here right now. I've already done the interview, but this show is going to be an interview with Dylan Levi King, a really awesome translator. So who is he? Well, he has lived and worked in the People's Republic of China, including stints in Guangzhou, Nanjing, and Dalian. He once spent months in a detention facility in Datong and weeks at the Four Seasons in Shenzhen, so the highs and the lows. Now he lives in the tidy, dull neighbourhood in central Tokyo, where he spends his days eating convenience store curry, chain-smoking Marlboro, Marlboro, oh dear, Marlboro menthol ultralights, reading Guomoro, and attempting to learn Japanese. His translation of Dongxi's Record of Regret is available at Amazon, and you can read more of his, more of his writing on Medium. Yes, I did just read that off of ChinaChannel.org, but it was a great chat that myself and Dylan had. Um, before I launch into it, here's the plugs. So what you need to know, you need to follow our Instagram, trchfic, on Instagram to get latest updates on what's coming up on the show. You, well, you don't need to, but you certainly could give a monthly recurring donation to the show on Patreon. That will help cover the SoundCloud hosting fees. Or for a one-off, uh, we now have a profile on getmeacoffee.com. Links to all that will be in the show notes. There's also going to be a link to Dylan Levi King's article on Floating City, his possibly his favorite untranslated Chinese novel, a piece of 90s Chinese sci-fi that sounds super duper interesting. Okay, plug's done. Let's get on with the show. So now on the show, we've got a wee interview with Dylan Levi King. He's a translator of more than one work from Chinese. So without me fumbling an introduction, would you just like to tell us a wee bit about yourself, Dylan? Yeah, sure. Um, I've been working with Chinese translation for about about 10 years now. Um, and my first major work was uh, Dongxi's Record of Regret, which came out through University of Oklahoma Press. I'm working on Jiaopingwa's uh, Qingqiang right now for Amazon Crossing. And, you know, over the years, many, many smaller works that, that came out in places where People will never find them, like <laughs> obscure journals and whatnot. I'm mm. I'm based in Tokyo right now, but I uh, spent about ten years um, going back and forth to between China and uh, Vancouver, where I went to school. Okay, so are you Canadian then? Yes, sir. Cool. Got some family over there, but not in Vancouver. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question. People ask me a lot. Um, how? Or when, or how and when, did you first get interested in China or connected with China? Mm, yeah, I mean, my story is kind of um, maybe atypical. I was I was going to school, doing an undergraduate degree in political science, and I just sort of had the opportunity to go overseas somewhere. I wanted to go to Brazil or mm. or Southeast Asia, you know, somewhere fun with drugs and women, but. Um, there's really no choices left, so I was kind of forced to choose China. And when I got there, I, I discovered, you know, it's like landing on another planet. You know, it's completely different from, from where I grew up, like out on the prairies in Canada. Right. And, I mean, literature was my interest. So when I got there, I, I, was, I was, it was complete, uh, you know, terra incognito, uh, completely unknown so when I started digging into it, and the more I dug into it, it was more and more fascinating. Mm -hmm. So sounds a wee bit like how I ended up in China. Um, 
I knew I wanted to go use my English degree to teach somewhere in, you know, the far eastern end of the world, but I didn't have a particular mm. country in mind. And then I landed on China. But of course, people always frame the question as, why China? When I guess for some foreigners, it's kind of a roll of the dice. And also, like, the place I ended up in was a small town. Where was the first place you landed when you landed um, in Terra Incognita? Yeah, um, I went to Nanjing University first. Okay. But then I was uh, just an absolutely, uh, I was a bad student. I wasn't really interested in, in going to class because, as I said, I, I was looking for women and drugs, and I actually found them when I got to China. So that was a, a major distraction, and I ended up, uh, leaving the program and going to northern Jiangsu province to uh, basically teach English and, and screw around for, for a while. And that's okay. where I really got my, my, that was really the best education possible. I learned so much more language and had so much more free time to, to go to the library and, and to read whatever I wanted. Was that a, a Chinese library reading Chinese books? Uh, yeah, I mean, and when you go to a Chinese library, they they usually have like the the foreign languages press copies of like uh, mm. Outlaws of the Marsh and Journey to the West. So that's that's sort of what I got started reading first in English and then going oh, okay. on to Chinese eventually. That's cool. Um, I did go to the, so I was in a town called Wukang, capital of um, Duqing County in Zhejiang, and they had a fab library, completely massive and modern, but they didn't they had plenty of foreign books translated into English, but there was never anything in English. At least they had one book in a collection, which was um, Mark Kittle's China Cuckoo, because it was based on a mountain nearby. But um, mm. yeah, whenever I wanted to go to the library, it would be to bring my laptop and do work or read books I'd brought with me or my Kindle. Um, well, the, so, uh, the thing I yeah. found when I got there was there was there was really nothing to read in English. Like mm. I, once you got through those foreign languages press books, and if you went to the to the Xinhua bookstore in the middle of town, there'd be like uh, like a bunch of nineteenth century novels like Middlemarch and and Jane Austen and whatnot. <laughs> right. So it's sort of like a, just out of necessity, like oh, I gotta I gotta find something to read. And this is this is pre sort of pre internet in a way. I mean, it was I shouldn't say that because it was two thousand late 2005 but i mean okay. less like crazy penetration of of like ebooks and all those kind of things but that would be an era with less internet censorship as well right yeah back when i first got there you could you could go on facebook you could you could do whatever the heck you wanted really right were a lot of people there on facebook in 2005 yeah i think so there was like those sort of like the twenty-something people you would meet out, they would always be like, "Yo, add me on Facebook." Oh. Whereas, whereas now it'd be like, "Just put me on WeChat or whatever." So, the, in in theory, there must be a lot of dead profiles out there that got cut off after Facebook got cut off. Yeah, probably. I mean, and some of those kids who were on Facebook would were the ones who were more likely to to try to find a way to to jump yeah. the wall. Lots of them like wanted to keep in touch with people. That's fair. Hmm. So was it? I know I'm. I know I'm probably digging into this too much, but um, I I traveled in Jiangsu province province quite a lot. But I could see there was quite an arm of the province that went north that I never really explored. Were you in one of the cities in the kind of the far north of Jiangsu, or was it really a small town? No, no, it was a a pretty big city called Xuzhou. All right, Xuzhou. It's yeah. the, and basically like you know the Jiangsu the 
the southern part is beautiful and and uh, green, whereas the north is is basically like 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 Shandong province or right. or eastern Hunan province. It's quite quite rough and and rugged. Yeah, there is a an Instagrammer I follow who um, is a Chinese guy who photographs Suzhou, and he makes it look nice, but by photographing it nice with all the city lights, I think that's the only way he could maybe pull that off. Yeah, I think every Chinese city is the same. Like you can, there's like all those promotional pictures of like the one little area that they've that they've redone in the last couple of years, but the rest is just 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 horrifying. Ooh. So you don't recommend Shuzhou for a wee weekend break? I mean, it depends on what you're looking for. I mean, like the famous products there are like uh, dog meat tacos and some. Oof. They've got a a museum of the tacos are really good, but uh, they've got <laughs> like an. Uh, they found some old Han Dynasty uh, things there, so they've got quite a nice museum. And but everything, all the charms of the old city and everything have been have been torn down, they've replaced with a Walmart and whatnot. Well, dog meat tacos, interesting. Yeah. So that's your kind of your your footstep or your what's the word? Your first foot in the door. We've we've explored that, but you yeah. mentioned your um, first <laughs> kind of studies academic studies were in political science so yeah. did you end up transitioning in academia to translation or has it all been a lot more kind of DIY uh, no I mean um, when I was there I uh, I fell in love with a sweet Chinese girl who was uh, a bookworm and she was she introduced me to, to many great works of, of Chinese literature and um, when I went back to Canada I decided to change my major to Chinese and I mm. changed schools even. I went to the University of British Columbia where they've got an amazing Chinese program and uh, a professor there in particular, uh, Christopher Ray, who's, who's published some of his own translations of, of Qing Dynasty uh, humor and whatnot, early Republican humor. He um, he just changed my life. He, he showed me how to read um, and introduced so many works that that I that I wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise, so I ended up getting a degree in in Chinese. Cool. And is that so? Is that an undergraduate degree or is that a postgraduate degree? No, undergraduate degree. Huh? I mean, cool. pretty much everyone else I know has gone on to do a do to continue in academia. I think I'm one of the few of like my cohort of you know of translators of sort of the same age who have stayed out of academia. Hmm. And would, would your pals who are still in academia, would they have the time um, to, if they wished, to kind of do freelance translation or just non-academic translation? Um, like, is it, a, is it a question of time or just disinterest slash interest? No, I mean, I, I think, like, if you look down the list each year of, of, of books coming out in, in translation from Chinese, I mean, like a huge percentage of them are done by academics. I mean, all right. with, with, with Chinese, it's they're, they're, all the translators are academics except for, you know, a very, a very short list. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. This is the stuff that I'm only just learning, having kind of come in as a total, well, just a random doing a publishing degree. Yeah, um, I mean, really that's, why the, that's why the translations from Chinese are so often not very good. I mean, for the, like the general reader, because they're done by these... Uh, sort of you know cloistered academic types whereas i picture people who translate from like french to english are like uh, uh cigarette smoking bon vivants who 
who just are are brilliant writers as well. Right. Yeah. You would need. Do you know how many of these academics, not to sound snobby, but how many of these academics haven't spent much time inside China? I mean, um, there's sort of a split, like with um, with older, with like the the previous generation, they they couldn't go to China. Like, right. Of course. Uh, you, you talk about Howard Goldblatt, who's like the dean of Chinese translation. Mm-hmm. I mean, when he, when he was getting his start, you he had to go to Taiwan to to learn Chinese, and right. so many. Uh, like Michael Duke, who's also another big name in, in Chinese translation. He's uh, sort of Taiwan-focused for that reason. But anyone who sort of came of age after, uh, let's say, the late 90s, they quite a few of them went over to China, like, like Joel Martinson's been in China forever, and I could name names. But uh, really, they've most of these academic uh, translators have also spent a lot of time in China. Okay. We did do one of Howard Goldblatt's books on the podcast, uh, Wang Shuo's Please Don't Call Me Human. Have you read that one? Yeah, I mean, I think I've read every Howard Goldblatt translation. I mean, oh, he's right. sort of like the, he's like the, the Jay-Z of, of, <laughs> of the translation world. I mean, you have to, even if you don't love him, you gotta, you got to check each, each new album, you know? Right. He's, uh, yeah. he's, he's got a really interesting history, and he's... he's He's sort of responsible for, for the work that I do today. If it wasn't for him, whether all of his work is great or not, I mean, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be able to do this. Mm. So if he's Jay Z, who's Kanye? Uh, I mean, I usually <laughs> say uh, Howard Goldblatt is Jay Z and Nicky Harmon is Nas. You know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, I'll I'll note that one down. That might be in the show notes as the wee hook Please. to get the listeners yeah. in. Okay. Um, so moving on to your present. So you're based in Tokyo, and I kind of had some some wonderings to myself. Hmm, why could that be? Or is that helpful? Is it not helpful? But without me um, imposing my own musings, what are the advantages and disadvantages of being a translator of Chinese based in Tokyo? rather than, say, Beijing or, I don't know, Vancouver? Mm, I mean, it's uh, part of it's practical. You know, it's, it's hard to be a freelancer and, and get a visa to, to just to stay in China and screw around, you know? Right, it's, yeah. I, I wouldn't even know how to do it. Um, it would be much more convenient if I was married to a Chinese woman, as many translators are, mm-hmm. to make that whole process easier. But, I mean, Tokyo is like a three-hour flight from Beijing so if I ever need to go do anything there it's it's easy also I mean uh, Tokyo is a city where if someone asks what you do and you say you're a Chinese translator um, they won't think it's unusual I mean there's been thousands of years of, of, of Japanese intellectuals and academics closely engaged with Chinese right. literature it's a, it's, um, mm. it's it's um, it's sort of like a storehouse of, of Chinese culture I mean, there's mm-hmm. still like huge Chinese departments in universities. People still um, read the Chinese classics and and read contemporary Chinese literature. So, so yeah. in that that way, the cultural side, it sort of makes sense too. I remember um, there was a time I was bored on WeChat and I was searching the name of um, just different bands I liked and WeChat usernames. I was that bored, yeah. and I think I searched for Run the Jewels, and I got this Chinese guy who loved hip hop, and I started talking to him. And it was like a mishmash of his basic English, my basic Chinese, lots of translation. 
And I started, he asked me like, what's your favorite traditional Chinese instrument? And I said, it's the, the chin, the R chin. Yeah. Is that? No, the R hu, the one that's like the, you know, the, the, very the fiddle kind of thing. The fiddle, that's the R hu, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And he sent me some R hu music on mm -hmm. QQ music. And I said, hang on a minute. This is, um, this is a Japanese track from Japan. And he said, yes, that's, and he said exactly what you just said. It's because it's a storehouse. This is, um, stuff that's had survived over there it was lost here and hopefully is on its way back oh, so yeah, it's, exactly. yeah so it's interesting that you've kind of are part of that movement maybe or at least that trend yeah i mean sort of sort of distant from it in a way right, because yeah. i my my japanese is is not uh, is not fluent but um it is a more chinese city than uh than you would think and that's that's the kind mm. of the classic influence, but also just like the the presence of of millions of Chinese people in Japan uh, now. Yeah, it's um, a thing I started to notice um, in. So there's a couple things. Have you seen the film Old Boy? Yes. Yeah. I, so first time I watched that, it was long before I ever knew I was going to China, and I didn't really think much of the. Um, the kind of presence of Japanese and Chinese stuff in that Korean film, but then there's mm. like I realized later there's a whole sequence where they're going through Chinese restaurants called is it it's Golden Dragon, isn't it? Chimong. I think so, yeah. Yeah, and they're just trying all the different dumplings, and then suddenly all those things were leaping out at me. And the other one was, did you ever watch the or any version of Ghost in the Shell? No, I don't think oh, so. Oh, all right, well. In the TV show version, the second season, the whole plot is about a refugee crisis in Japan and it's refugees from China, um, which is a bit of a hard to imagine scenario. But there's a lot of Chinese stuff in that if you're looking for it and if you know where it is in that season because of the presence of the refugees. But first time I watched it, again, it was in university studying English Lit and it was, you know, Chinese and Japanese things looked the same to me. They're yeah. bouncing off. Anyway, I'm totally rambling now. Um, it's, it's the first yeah. Ghost in the Shell. The first Ghost in the Shell movie is set in in Hong Kong, isn't it? Or am yeah. I thinking of something completely? Um, it's it's. I think its aesthetics are um, based on Hong Kong. I think it's mm. set in Japan, but the artist was basically drawing Hong Kong, like nineties nineties Hong Kong, and you can you can see it again. Um, I had never been to Hong Kong when I first watched that film version and wasn't seeing it at all. But then I rewatched that version of the film and then also the ridiculous, um, oh, what's she called? What's that actress? Scarlett Johansson? Yeah, the ridiculous Scarlett Johansson version. And yeah, I had been to Hong Kong after, prior to having seen, rewatching the original and then watching the Hollywood version. And I was like, oh yeah, that is Hong Kong. But I, I think... Have one Sorry. more wild digression. Um, do, oh, you know the Kow, do you know the Kowloon Walled City? Um, no. It's like this. It's like this. Um, basically built in, I guess, the Qing Dynasty in, in Hong Kong. It was sort of this space that was always outside of the um, the jurisdiction of the sort of Hong Kong city. So it, it was sort okay. of. Uh, just this massive fortress and a warren of tunnels and everything. It survived up till the seventies, I believe. But they've they recreated it in Tokyo at a built Ooh. into uh, an arcade. There's an arcade inside, and they've sort of meticulously recreated this this weird ghetto of 
of Hong Kong and in Tokyo. So, yeah, just a wild digression. Yeah, yeah, um, I think it's it's interesting. I always found it interesting as a complete outsider seeing all the interactions between you know the China Korea, China Japan, Japan Korea, but like especially in Shanghai, Shanghai where I was spent most of my time in China has a massive Korea town. But the Korea town isn't just a Korea town. It's kind of a hub for all the foreigners from neighboring countries rather than foreigners from, you know, the English speaking or Western world. And just as someone who didn't really have a dog in the race, it was a really interesting place to walk around. Mm. Anyway, I think we should stop rambling about these things. Yes, get back on track here. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, Sophie's diary. So I've literally just read that for the first time. Um, I um chose to read it as a pdf i'll get into that in a minute um but what's what's your history with the diary of miss sophie or sophie's diary or what's your history with reading ding ling um i mean it would have been something i read in uh probably fourth year chinese class um reading in the original and Mm. Uh, I know I have on my shelf uh, a copy of the uh, the Tani E. Barlow uh, translation, which is like a collection with, I think it's called I Myself Am a Woman. Yeah, my PDF is, was a clip from that. Yeah, I think it came out in the in shortly after she had died, I believe in the in the early nineties. Um, uh, I'll bring so, up the PDF. I think it's about that. Let me see. It's got the year on the because the PDF. It's just the story, but they have the cover page of the book. Let me see. Sure. It's being slow. Oh, yeah, I mean... Sorry, keep going. 1989, apparently. Oh, 1989. I'm so close to... So so old now, but... um, (laughs) Yep. I feel uh, it. Yeah, there's sort of an emphasis in in undergraduate Chinese courses and especially Chinese education in the West, when you look at literature, to look at those those May 4th writers. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're very easy to teach. I mean, they were very influenced by by Western literature and sort of, you know, the individualist, modernist uh, forms that are right. quite easy to talk about. Yeah. Make me feel lazy for doing... That's two I've done on my show now, because the first episode was Lu Xun. But you're right. Yeah, they're not at all alien they feel no, I mean, comfortable. Yeah, I mean, um, I really kind of dislike that era of literature myself, to be to be honest. I mean, maybe because I was forced to read so much of it. I mean, I sort of more appreciate it as like a, a movement, like the new culture movement itself, mm-hmm. rather than the actual works it it produced, like Lucien. I, I never want to read Lucien again. <laughs> Um, I, I know that you were on the, the Chinese Literature Podcast before, and I seem to remember listening to one of their episodes on Lu Xun, and one of those guys, yeah, really wasn't digging it, I think, for similar reasons. No, I mean, I think we can all be honest that Lu Xun is, is, not, is not good, but, but what, a, what a powerful contribution to Chinese culture, but his writing, we don't need to read it anymore. Okay. I've, <laughs> I've only read... Um, Diary of a Madman. I think I started. I had I had that collection of short stories, and yeah, I started another one and kind of lost interest. But I was reading on an iPhone screen, which probably wasn't helping. No, no. Um, right. So that that kind of leads into the next question really nicely. Um, 
because this is so this is the second kind of new culture book we're doing i yeah that we're doing on the podcast and it's also in a diary form so do you think it's got any do you think it could be any kind of a response to the lucian diary of a madman or do you think there's a reason why the diary form got used at least these two times do you know if there's any other new culture books that take the form of a diary mm, you i you that's that's a good question probably somebody listening to this is is just thinking of like three different yeah. uh you know diary yeah short stories into I was, their phone right now yeah i'm, I'm thinking maybe you that fool maybe might have done the same trick but um i think it's just like the the best way to pull off the trick that they were that they were trying to do which is just sort of like foreground that interiority foreground mm. that individual sort of message um yeah. i think that's i think that's just the the best form to do that in the simplest form to do it in although i think um uh, it's not my original thought. I, I don't know if I heard this on the Chinese Literature Podcast or something I read, but um, Miss Sophie's Diary is way more interior than um, Diary of a Madman because this one's like an emotional roller coaster, whereas it seemed like Diary of a Madman, he's although what he's seeing is obviously not completely, may not be completely real, it's not really, it's not it's not an emotional outpouring like this one is. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like those, uh, like those Lucian kind of, uh, those writings are, are sort of made not not just as like a, a, a portrait of an individual, but also you know they have uh, they can be read as you know about China, whereas you know Dingling's writing is is incredibly personal. I mean, mm. there's no, it's political by being intensely personal, whereas Lucian was kind of another another thing altogether. Yeah, I think as a, as I was reading this one, I was thinking, oh, okay, how can I um, read like a picture of the country and its present state into this? And I felt like I couldn't really, apart from yeah, like the kind of her her as a new woman, how she would fit into both kind of world trends at the time and Chinese trends, and like looking for Western or cosmopolitan influences in the book. There was mentions of like things in urban life like cinema um newspapers advertisements and there's the her love interest is a singaporean and there's references to speaking english but like really overt references to the foreign powers in beijing i feel like they aren't really there they're only kind of there by inference yeah i mean that's why i think this for me at least it it kind of stands above or stands up to rereading more than mm. other May 4th literature where with that literature I've, I've gotten the message I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> really care um, but with uh, with Dingling's writing from that period I mean it's it's um, it's so emotional and so and so powerful and so personal that you could really stands up to pulling it down from the shelf again mm-hmm. and it's fairly brief um, just a uh... So 18 pages in my PDF, first two are the, the cover. So that would be 16 times two, just 32 pages of this book. Um, I, I felt it got a bit, a wee bit repetitive, um, but maybe you know, it, it was because it was a character focused, you know, it's not got an awful lot of plot in it. So it seemed to be definitely just about the human beings and what they were doing. No fancy yeah, descriptions, just... yeah. 
just intense focus on her. I mean, mm-hmm. that book has, I mean, it's it's been, I think, just as influential as um, as Lucian's writing, but for for different people. I mean, I think you can you can look through, you know, Chinese and Taiwanese women writers through the past forty or fifty years, and and just see that that uh, it all started with with Dingling. Mm-hmm. It was definitely um, so on on my podcast Instagram. I've been trying to figure out the best way to get reactions and, and interest from people. So what I did for this one was I posted a wee picture of her and said, "Who knows who this is?" Um, I did that on Twitter as well. I, yeah, you responded to that, didn't you? You took the yes, bait. I did. Yeah, that's how yeah. I were having this chat. And um, I don't know how much of it was the format, and I don't know how much of it was Ding Ling and the um, the um, kind of popularity she has but it definitely got a reaction um maybe a reaction i wouldn't have got if i'd popped up i don't know one of her um more generic male contemporaries yeah i mean she looks sexy as hell in her in those old black and white pictures uh, mm. from like the the 20s and 30s yeah hmm what else can i say um yeah so um so on the topic of wait no hang on Give me a sec. Yeah. So here's a question. Um, all that umming and ahhing is going to get edited out, by the way. Um, so you've got a fairly good knowledge of, I guess, both how she's read in China and in the West. Would you say she's more popular in her home country than with readers of Chinese fiction abroad? Or would you say there's differences in the ways that she's appreciated? Or is it more or less the same everywhere? Mm, I mean, she was basically um, she was sidelined for for most of her life. I mean, yeah. starting in like starting in like the the forties, she was she she wrote uh, the sunshines over the the Sangan and and whatnot. But after that, from like nineteen fifty eight to you know the late nineteen seventies, she was either on a commune or or in solitary confinement or just unable to write i mean it's and she was basically erased from history i i think she i think you're right that she does have more of a profile in the west you mm. know with uh that tiny barlow collection when that came out i think it really got people to uh to start to start reading her again right i mean but but like i said i mean i you when you look at people like um, there's this book called uh, Shanghai Baby, so oh yes, came out, in, came out in 1999, translated by Bruce Humes. I um, mean, it's you you have to see like the like the the fingerprints of of Ding Ling's uh, 1920s writing on that, and like Taiwanese writers like uh, Liang and Chu uh, Tianwen, these these women who um, sort of followed in her footsteps and wrote these intensely personal books about about women. So I mean, mm. I think her influence is huge on Chinese writers, but the I don't think anyone's really. I think she does have a a larger uh, profile in the West. Mm. Um, I can tell you a story that uh, about a place that kind of gave me. A, ideas or it gave me some initial interest in Chinese writers 
So there's an area of Shanghai, I think I mentioned it in the Lushun episode, which is called Writer Street. I'm trying to remember the name of the district it's in. Oh dear. Hongko District, which was um, where a lot of the Chinese uh, left-leaning modernist writers lived. And it was kind of a minor irony, because that was the part of uh, colonial Shanghai that was administered by Japan. Right. Um, But there's um, this whole area which is kind of dedicated to Lushun. Shanghai's big, really nice Lushun Park is there. It's got one of the many Lushun museums. But there's like an actual street which has um, like bookshops, ink and pen shops. And it's got some wee stone murals of these various um, kind of Republican era writers. And the only two I think I have, I, I could recognize Lushun by sight at that point. But uh, Ding Ling got pointed out to me. And at first I thought, yeah, that's a silly name. Um, but then I kind of heard more and more about her. So that's a preface to this question. How do you think the kind of re-acknowledgement or re-recognition of Dingling might have come about in China? Do you think it could have been kind of a return from Taiwan, her popularity in Taiwan kind of spilling into a more free China? Or if if you don't know, that's because I certainly No, I mean... Know. I think I have a just a just a boring answer that she was. It's just sort of a rehabilitation. I mean, she did have mm. a. She was there from the start. She was. She went to um, to Shanxi. She was a revolutionary, yeah. and uh, I mean, it was just sort of political uh, nonsense that that had her sidelined. So I, I think it's just a sort of a just a rehabilitation of her, you know, legacy from the forties and the fifties. So it was, in a sense, the government that allowed her to kind of come back as a well-read Chinese writer inside China. Yeah, I mean that the part of the project of rehabilitating all those people that were that were marked as as rightists was was sort of a was kind of a big political program of of reform and opening and and modernization of the country. I mean, it was mm. seen as a, a big deal that that the government was allowing those people to come back. I mean, she sort of benefited from from that more than anything. She had really good connections um, also in the government. I mean, they didn't save her when, when she was sent to Qinchong prison in Beijing, but um, she still had those connections when she, when she resurfaced in the late 70s and early 80s. So, yeah, I, mm. it's, I don't think there's an interesting answer to that question, unfortunately. Okay. Um, do you know... Would you be able to name any of those specific steps they would have taken to rehabilitate her? Uh, yeah, I mean, when she first—I I don't know if I, if I, if I, if this is what you want—but when she, when she first got out of prison in um, seventy-five, she went to, uh, she was sent to Shanxi again. She okay. reunited with her husband, who was. Who had actually been held in the same prison as her, like I think a couple cells away from hers. Oh, geez. Um, yeah, and uh, so there was just sort of constant thawing after that 1975 release when she was sent to Shanxi. By that time, she was already, you know, in her early 70s. So um, she used some of her connections and her and her husband's connections to come back to Beijing in in I. Think probably the early '80s, and she reunited with with all those writers, many of whom had been um, marginalized as as writists, like um, Shen Songwen, 
was probably there. And she just sort of rebuilt that that network, which was which was sidelined during most of the 70s. And she sent petitions off to to big leaders who were very keen to distance themselves from the sort of the the radical leftism of the 70s. And she sort of even though she was getting on in years, she was in her 70s by then, she sort of managed to build up her reputation again in her networks. So a lot of it was it was her own doing, not some big government program to publish her books or some such. No, I mean they um when she came out in 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 78 um sorry in 75 uh, 78 I think her she was fully rehabilitated. There was some mm. she republished a a book or or revised a book that had that she had been working on before she was sent to prison, but I think that was her only major publication. After that, I think there was okay. a, also a, a memoir of her time in a in a commune called I think it's translated as Cowpen. But Cowpen, uh, yeah, she was right. she was a, an old woman by then. She she really of course, did yeah. her best, but she she was nearing the end. Okay, so I think that's uh, just about enough about uh, Sophie's diary and Dingling. So now some kind of more nitty gritty questions. Um, sure. All about being a translator of Chinese to English. So since you might have some particular knowledge here, um, could you tell us a wee bit about the role of university presses in getting stuff from Chinese into English and getting it out there? I mean, that's huge. As I said, all these translators are, are academics and their biggest outlet is university presses. When you look at the list of, of what's come out each year in in translation, you see the same names every every year. It's always um, Columbia University Press, usually University of Hawaii, which publishes a oh. lot of uh, Howard Goldblatt's books. Uh, Yale University, Duke University, uh, University of Oklahoma, which which put out a book that I did recently. Um, but they are basically the the major um, publishers of Chinese fiction in, in translation, things that are of academic interest, translated by mm. academics and mostly read by academics as well, I think. And are there any university presses from outside North America that are as prolific with Chinese books? Uh, in English, um, I can't think of a UK publisher, UK mm. university publisher off the top of my head that does a lot of Chinese fiction. There's not really even many yeah. Canadian ones. There's uh, University right. of British Columbia Press puts out a little bit, but it's those American university presses that are, especially those like top five uh, university presses are, are just have the, the translation market cornered for Chinese. Right. Maybe we need to up our game over here on this side of the pond. I do know the big one of the big UK nexuses for uh, Chinese writing and translation, it's the Leeds University has a centre for Chinese writing, but I don't think right. they actually have a press, as far as I'm aware. I don't think so either. Yeah. I think they're quite tied up with um, or interwoven with Nikki's, Nikki Harmon's Paper Republic, although I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not an insider, so I don't know how quite know how the connections work, but I think there's I quite a lot of overlap. Really. Yeah. Okay. And, so and the question yeah. is, the question could be why why do Americans put out so many 
uh, Chinese mm. books in translation. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, I think part of it is just like a lot of these academics were, you know, sort of relics of the Cold War. Like Howard Goldblatt got his yeah. education in Chinese in uh, when he was in the Navy. And right. Yeah. I think it's that Cold War relationship with that Cold War tension with China that, that produced so many people who were studying China. That would make sense. I definitely know. So one thing that led to the creation of this podcast was me having returned to the UK. Actually, it was even before I returned to the UK. I was just looking for podcasts to listen to because I became slowly and more, more and more addicted. So in China, I was looking for podcasts about China. And the majority of them are, well, I was had no interest in business or almost no interest in business podcasts. Yeah. But with those cast aside, the vast, vast, vast majority were politics, international relations, geopolitics. And those were interesting enough for me to listen to. And yeah, a lot of them seem to be tied to universities. And I, I guess probably also one advantage the US has is a great big um, American Chinese population. I think mean, proportionally it's probably quite a bit larger than the UK. Mm. And I mean, like increasingly, like, you know, close business relationship with China. Yeah. And uh, especially the universities are just making a ton of cash off of China and doing doing big business with, you know, launching campuses uh, in oh, China as well. That UK is doing that too. Um, there's actually, I think my university, um, Edinburgh Napier, it's not a, it's an old former polytechnic, um, not an old traditional established university, but it's um, opening up some tartan color. <laughs> it's opening up a school in Shenzhen, which has like tartan carpets and is totally amping up the Scottishness, but of course... Very shameless. Uh, Completely exactly. shameless. In our campus here in Edinburgh, we'd never do that. We'd never have a tartan <laughs> carpet. But in Shenzhen, why not? Yeah, throw the tartan down. Yeah. And I have a, an uncle who's a geography professor in which uni is it? It's in England. He betrayed us. Um, Durham, Durham University. And he does quite a lot of trips around the world, um, trying to recruit overseas students. And China's the place that I think gets the most visits. Does he Just, throw his kilt on when he goes? Does he throw the tartan on? He should, but I think yeah. because he's representing an English university, that would just cause uh, confusion. Right, 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 for sure. Yeah, but I'll, I'll mention that to him if I'm in touch for with sure. him anytime soon. <laughs> Thank um, you. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a percentage of the proceeds. Thank you. Um, yeah, so that's university presses. And you, you mentioned earlier you're working with Amazon Crossing just now as well. Yeah, I mean Amazon is um, Amazon is a beast in the in the world of of Chinese translation. I mean, I, I maybe it's a conspiracy theory, but I think it has something to do with their with their deal to to sell books in China. Mm. Um, I think there's they have some interest in in promoting Chinese books as well, but they they have completely changed um, what's being published and who's translating it rather than those university presses who are mostly interested in, in works of academic or literary interest, they've been able to branch out to um, maybe work that, that wouldn't be translated or would come out on a very small press before. So, I mean, mm. they're a, an evil corporation, of course. I mean, um, there's no yeah. denying that, but they've, they've been very good for the, for the tra Chinese translation market. Yeah, uh, 
all through the taught part of my course because I'm on the dissertation part now. It's like a weekly reminder of yes, Amazon are are incredibly evil. Um, so uh, you don't need to convince me of that one. But that's that's fantastic because um, what my dissertation is kind of going to be looking for. It's yeah, it's exactly what part of Chinese writing is being missed just because the market wants you know the market wants banned in China books and the market wants this kind of book that kind of book. So if um if do you think that the the books that Amazon Crossing would be bringing into the English speaking world would be a bit more kind of like pop Chinese fiction, um less heavy and literary or more genre fiction? I mean their their record so far is is sort of an emphasis on I guess more pop literary stuff. I mean mm. they some of it's quite you know far from you know, pulp fiction airport books. I mean, they last year they did um, a Japanese novel, oh, yeah. translated by by Nikki Harmon. They did uh, a book by Rune called uh, "A Tree Goes in Daichung. Um They, you'd think they would do more, you know, popular books. They've they've their choices have been quite good so far. They haven't really gone deep into genre fiction, but more popular mm. literary stuff. Okay, popular literary stuff. Cool. Um, did I have a follow-up question? Don't think I do. Yeah. So that's that's Amazon. Um, would you like to tell us a wee bit about your life and your work and the the business of being a translator and all the ins and outs of that? Since it's still a total mystery to me and quite possibly a mystery to a lot of our show listeners. Yeah, I'm always happy to talk about that because sometimes people email me and say, "How do I become a, a translator?" Okay, or something so, like that, and um, it's it's really I believe that it is impossible to make a living as a as a translator from Chinese to English. I managed to do it, uh, but only by living in a very cheap place. For a mm-hmm. book from a university press, the first book I I translated, I got. Uh, seven thousand dollars, and that was, you know, that's a uh, translating a novel. It's a several several months uh, time, so it's it's almost necessary to be either in academia or have a a very lucrative day job to 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 back that up. I mean, the mm. it's uh, basically a lonely, um, poorly compensated job with. Where you're publishing books that very few people read and uh, even fewer uh, critics review. It's a very Ouch. dark, 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 dark work. Yeah, that description just sounded darker with each item on the list. <laughs> yes, but I mean, um, if you do it well, if you if you line up some some translation work on the side that's not literary fiction, um, you could use that to mm. to subsidize your your work with literary translation and you could you could live pretty well you could not have a day job which is i mean that's what i think everyone should be should be aiming for so it's, yep. it's not that dark it's, i'm sure it's satisfying anyway yeah it's it's very satisfying it's it's nice that to to just uh to know that i don't have to do anything else i just have to completely lose myself in a novel even if it's only paying seven thousand dollars to translate it, it's still still the opportunity to 
to completely tear apart a novel and, and rebuild it. Mm. I actually remembered what I was going to ask from before. Um, it, about It's about lighter fiction, super light fiction, actually. Um, sure. So when I was at London Book Fair, there was this company I stumbled across called Web Novel, who were, they're an offshoot of Chidian, which is a Chinese online kind of light fiction platform. And yeah. they are translating, I think, with freelancer, professional freelancers, and I think, like, just web users who get paid in, I don't know, little microtransactions. They're bringing um, tr books over from Chidian into English on an international platform. And I think they're also getting writers to contribute to a web novel in English. But a lot of it's got a bit of a Chinese vibe to it, whether it's um, based on something based on ancient Chinese culture or whether it's just got a flavor. So one of their top novels, it's about uh, the main character is a professional gamer. So of course wow. that's not, you know, it's got a bit of a Korean flavor to it, I suppose. Right. But have you, have you stumbled across anything like that uh, in the world yeah. of translating? Yeah, I actually had a, had a side job maybe a, a couple years ago now doing uh, wuxia novels. So like oh. Chinese fantasy Ooh. novels uh, for, for very little payment. Um, but it was surprising that there was actually somebody paying for it. And there was um, just an, a, an impressive readership for those translations in, in English. And yeah. like you said, it's, it's mostly, you know, like non-professional translators, mostly people who just love the, love the books, uh, translating them. Not always really, really great translations, but mm -hmm. there is like a, a, a massive number of those uh, web novels out there and people reading them in English translation. Yeah, it's something that um, I don't know if, if there has been academic writing on it. It's something I want to fish around in for my dissertation because it seems like a total like iceberg thing. You, if you if you take a, a passing glance, you see a little bit, but yeah, it seems like there's a massive, kind of unofficial readership of this stuff. It makes me wonder who these people are. I mean, like even even when you go beyond like that genre fiction stuff, there's there's always been like since the two thousands, um, just a a large number of a large number of literary works as well put up online. You know, people who are completely, you know, the publishing industry works different in China than it does here. There's sort of oh, less yeah. of a chance of of breaking in. You can't really just write a brilliant novel and start sending it off to publishers in China. So there was just like people who who built a name for themselves off of off of those web novels. So it's sort yeah. of for every you know big book that comes out, uh, there's like a million that are just circulating on the web. Yeah, well, one of one of the episodes I did was on Murong Shuaitun and uh, Leave Me Alone, and that's yeah. that's how he did it, amazingly. Yeah, he's one of the success stories coming out of that world. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I've in my wee brackets here, um, I had a few kind of specific areas for uh, the kind of job of being a translator I'd like to ask about. So there's sure. payments, contracts, and pitches. What can you tell us about those things? Uh, it's just a, an absolute hassle. You know, like I said, the, the work is dark, but it's actually the, it's actually like trying to figure out how to deal with publishers. That's the real dark work. I'm, I've been really interested in this novel recently called uh, Fuchang, which is usually translated as Floating City. 
it's by a writer yeah. named Liang Xiaosheng. He's uh, sort of like a it's kind of a sci-fi novel. It's about a city that floats away from the mainland, sort of drifts off into the Pacific. Uh, just a an amazing book. It's a huge bestseller in the original, but um, you know, trying to shop it around to publishers, you know, most of them won't talk to you if you don't have a, you know, they don't want to talk to anyone who's not an agent. Right. And then there's just the issue of of securing the rights to it from from the Chinese side, where there's never a clear cut uh, situation with rights. The the writer will will usually say, I don't know. The publisher will say, Yeah, maybe. Uh, but there might have been another publisher along the way who grabbed the international rights, so it's it's just a uh, it's just a pain to to do that sort of business work on the side of just being a translator. It's mm. so much nicer if a publisher comes to you to to pitch a project. Um, hopefully, I'm I'm at the in the position where from now on, mostly publishers will be pitching me on things rather than the than the other way around. But I'm just at the moment suffering through trying to get this uh, floating city book placed with with somebody yeah i read the wee um synopsis or a blurb of floating city that you sent me and this sounds absolutely amazing and it just made me think so there's there's a bit of a wave of new chinese sci-fi that's got quite a lot of buzz just now so it would seem like the iron would be hot to try and get floating city out there even if it is what originally published in the 90s is that right yeah, originally published in the '90s, but it was just such a um, such an important book that sort of inspired all these all these later writers. I mean, his name checked directly in in lots of these new sci-fi novels that have come out in translation. Mm. It was just sort of a, a groundbreaking book that that needs to be translated. But yeah. it is it is old, and um, uh, I mean, grant money for uh, doing Chinese translation. From, of science fiction is is not so forthcoming. So if you're dealing with publishers who mostly get funding uh, from Chinese sources, they're they're not really interested in in trying to secure a grant for uh, a Chinese sci-fi novel. You sort of have to go to these people like Tor or 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 Head of Zeus. Yeah, I was thought. about to say Head of Zeus because they've all the Chinese sci-fi books I've got on my bookshelf are Head of Zeus. Yeah, but uh, they they've sort of they they have a limit to to what they can publish and how much they can publish, and you have to go back to the to the writer himself, who's who's very um, who's insisting on a certain type of publisher. So it's it's oh. hard to get these books um, out. What kind of publisher does he want? Um, I mean, he was burned in the past, I mean, as he sees it, when it came out in uh, in Korean. I mean, he's he has some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder about his book being put out by some Korean pulp uh, press, and he wasn't happy about it. So I guess he wants it to come out on on uh, Simon and Schuster or something. I don't know oh, what, his, what his deal is. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I can sympathize, but oh my goodness, what a pain. Yeah, and he's a very old man uh, oh. now, and. Uh, yeah, so is it, there's there's many when you see these books come out in translation and you look at the list and you see ah, it's it's not a very long list. I mean, it's not all because there's limited interest in in Chinese fiction, but also right. many many issues with with publishers and rights and and securing all that. Hmm, that's something I hadn't properly considered. All the different barriers, and 
as I understand it, China's a trick rights wise, it's trickier than other countries, right? Yeah, I mean, if you look at um, uh, the situation of Jia Pinghua, he's basically the, the king of, of Chinese literature. He's one of the greats. He should have the Nobel Prize. But uh, he's been kind of stymied by, by, by rights. I mean, there's absolute confusion to this day of, of who owns the rights to what. I mean, they, they, the, his people have given the rights to person X, and then they gave the rights to <laughs> other books of person Y, but there was sort of a crossover uh, between the two lists. So it's, um, it's, it's tricky. Nobody so it's, knows who owns yeah. the rights, and there's, there's, there's often no, no real contracts. So it's hard to, to nail right. down who has what when. So it's not the cliche of the Chinese system being too strict. It's actually like the reality you come across. I came across over and over where the law, there's, the laws are actually too loose. Nothing's clearly defined. So yeah, nobody can really, happen. Like if you did a book and you, maybe there was some discussion of international rights, maybe there was a, a contract signed in like 1991 for that floating city book. But since then it's, it's changed hands to all different publishers. So oh, probably it's in the writer's control, but he doesn't know and he doesn't really give a damn either. So. No, if I was the writer, I'd find that far too exhausting to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Okay, so you mentioned Jia Pinghua, and um, you, you let me know that you're working on a translation of his book, Qinjiang, a.k.a. Shanxi Opera, is that right? That's right, that's right. Um, I'm working on it with, with Nikki Harmon right now. She's... Um, I know I've said it a million times, but she's really the best uh, translator uh, working mm. right now um, so it's a, a great opportunity to work with her and Jia Pinghua is um, he his books really changed my life I mean when I was in northern Jiangsu and came across them uh, they sort of opened a whole other world so to finally get the opportunity to work with those with both Jia Pinghua and Nikki Harmon it's, it's just wonderful so you picked up his books in Suzhou, Suzhou. Yeah, I mean, um, particularly, uh, he put out a book in, the, I believe, 1990, 1992, I forget. Um, it's translated as Ruined City by right. Howard Goldblatt. Um, it's basically the, the greatest work of, of Chinese literature. It's about a, uh, a writer and a, a rural upstart, and it's, it's got sex and... Uh, yeah, that's about all it has, and it was. Um, it's. I sort of read it at the perfect time, and when other people might read, you know, um, Updike or Garcia Marquez or something like that, it it sort of just opened up a new horizon. You know, I I do like Chinese literature, but deep down, I'm basically a fan of of Japanese wine, and his writing is is what I've wanted to translate from the very beginning. That's, okay. that's all I've cared about for about ten years. It's good to have a goal. I think, yes. yeah, um, my interest in reading Chinese fiction probably really kicked off with um, Sushin Leo and his uh, sci-fi trilogy. Mm. Um, so that's probably why I'm so interested in stuff that doesn't fit the mold of like a standard literary translated book. It's really interesting to see the possibilities when you read a piece of genre fiction that's just trying to... And I feel like he probably... Yeah, I suppose he wasn't just writing for Chinese readers, but it's got, it's got the feel of a, you know, a book from China, which isn't, 
and is authentically Chinese, but isn't all about China. And yeah, so that's probably the, I'm kind of partly stuck in that mindset. And it's just the mindset I had of reading the first book and thinking, wow, this is totally something special. Yeah, but I think going forward, I mean, I think there'll be a lot of people who who share that same experience of, of reading uh, Cixin Liu and, and just going to dig deeper into into mm-hmm. what's out there. I think he's that's sort of a a big a big moment for for Chinese translation. Yeah, on my with my podcast's Instagram account, I follow a few of the different hashtags that I post under. Yeah, and um, I think under like hashtag Chinese literature. Um, it's very often people taking pictures of their three body problem books that pops up under Chinese literature. So hopefully yeah. that's the start of a ball rolling and it'll be not just that book and not just classics that start popping up. We can only hope. Indeed. Okay, so another book, um, one you've finished translating. Actually, no, rewind, rewind, rewind. You mentioned you're working with Nikki Harmon on translating Shanxi Opera. Yes. And I also know that the link you sent me about that was on a website called Ugly Stone, which seems to be all about translating Jiapingwa. Is that right? Yeah, there's this uh, a fellow named Nick Stember. He's uh, he's one of those academics. I think he's at Cambridge right now. Um, I, I've known him since probably 2009, and he was one of those people who were who were given the rights to to Jiapingwa's uh, international it's international rights. So he said about promoting them. He he made the Ugly Stone website and oh, okay. uh, and put out sample translations and and informations on the the very few at the time existing translations of of Jiapingwa. And um, you know since he since he launched the website, um, there's just been a, a flood of of Jiapingwa books in, in translation. Not mm. not not solely uh, because of Nick Stember's project, but he was a big part of the reason there's so many Jia books out in translation. It's a really nice website, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, he was kind of screwed over by by the rights situation, um, the confusion over it. But uh, I mean, he's doing fine, and and Jia Pingwa is doing fine in translation. So hopefully, there's no hard feelings. Cool. And just a question about, so having two people, yourself and Nikki Harmon, working on translating the book, is it kind of like a, a teacher and a student role? Is she kind of mentoring your way through it? Or are you kind of sharing the workload? How, how's, how does that work? Well, I, I kind of see it as a, as a teacher-student uh, thing, although she's, she's very resistant to that <laughs> idea. Um, uh, but yeah, I've, I've learned a lot from her. There, I had some very kind of uh, strange ideas about what makes a good translation and she sort of steered me towards uh, a better way of doing things. Okay, um, is she making your thinking a bit more conventional or just a bit more kind of common, like, I don't know, accurate? No, I, no, I mean, I think I, I, all those university presses who put out Chinese books translated by academics, they're, they're all of a certain style. Mm. Uh, they're, they're, they're not very, they're not very good they're they're 100% accurate translations but they're just a slog to read through right. you can always you can always see the chinese original through them you know whereas mm-hmm. nikki harman has is is just quite adept at taking the original and um, translating it in a way that that it it preserves the the flavor the spirit the original essence while actually being in 
beautiful modern English. Whereas the, you know, I was very infected by that style of of wanting to to have a hundred percent accuracy and and right. don't change a single word. Well, she she actually writes books. She translates books that people actually read. Um, so mm-hmm. I've, I've learned a lot from her in that way. Um, yeah, I think I mentioned on the podcast. Um, I've had, I like on one hand I like it when it, the translated book I'm, I read is very kind of naturalistic and readable, but I also kind of get a weird fun and if it's if the prose is just a wee bit askew then or if there's something that feels like I'm seeing the original text through the slightly askew prose I can kind of enjoy that, but that said I have actually had a really bad experience reading a translated work. It was when I sat down to read uh, well. This makes it sound like I did it in one sitting. Of course, I didn't. Uh, the um, Hong Lo Mong, Dream of the Red Chamber, on my Kindle, right. and I was yeah. reading like the first Victorian translation. And oh my god, that was a that was a mistake. Yeah. I should have gotten a more modern translation. Yeah, I mean, um, I sort of was addicted to that <clears throat> style of wanting to preserve everything. But um, mm-hmm. we've we've gone. Our our style of translating is sort of to do chapter. Um, by chapter sort of I'll do one and then she'll do the next and then we switch off and, and edit it and, and through her edits I've, I've seen uh, so many so many issues with my uh, with my approach that, that have been improved for the better mm, that's cool so it's a it would be like you do chapter one she does chapter two and then you swap you edit chapter one and then Sorry, you do chapter one, she does chapter two, and then swap. You edit chapter two, she edits chapter one. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of more... There's actually no <laughs> chapters in the book, so we've just sort ah, of cu- so cut it up sort of arbitrarily. Right. Okay. But sort of big chunks, uh, and then switching them back and forth. Mm, cool. I've not read anything translated uh, by her, but I've got the chili bean, pla- chili bean paste clan on the mail in the mail to me now from amazon so i'm gonna get my first bite out of her translations quite soon looking forward to yeah. it check it out and also check out um she just did a book for aca uh elaine charles asia of another mm-hmm. dapping one novel uh broken wings highly right, recommended yeah. as well as happy dreams which is I've, one of my yeah. favorite dapping novels she did I've been speaking to someone from ACA um, who just kind of randomly reached out via the podcast. So, yeah, there might be, watch this space, there might be something something about one of their books on the show at some point in the future. Mm. Not sure which one yet. Um, maybe maybe that one. Uh, righty-ho. One more book to talk about. Last one I'm going to quiz you on, I think. Um, okay. So it's it's your own published translation a record of regret by dong shi yeah i did it for university of oklahoma press they they did a, a book series chinese literature today uh book series that includes the japingwa ruined city translation there's a moyan novel in there called sandalwood death oh, yeah. um, dong shi's a sort of came of age around the same time as every other chinese writer um, went to university in the 80s and he put out he eventually went into into screenwriting but he published a, a series of very popular novels in in the 90s and early 2000s right and so i i listened to 
a wee bit of your of the podcast Chinese the Chinese literature podcast did with you that was about this book um yes sir I, I didn't finish it um I think I didn't have time but I'm not sure what we could talk about here that you didn't talk about on that episode is there anything you kind of wish you could have talked about more that we could cover that wouldn't be a repetition no I don't think there's anything uh um, ah, okay just just go and listen to that uh it's been so long since i since i translated the book that i that i and i wasn't in love with it either like i am with the zapping novels so all right the, the less said about it the better maybe hmm so is there any danger if you're um, translating something that you maybe i don't know if contempt is too strong of a word if you're not totally into a book and you're translating it is there a danger that you might not quite do it justice or you might project your own dislike into the translation is that something you can no, kind of consciously no. avoid no okay. no i think the problem is is uh resisting the urge to make it better you know Ooh, when you read like yes. when you read like this this really like hackneyed phrasing and you think oh it would be so much better if he had said this or or oh it's it's very stupid that this character enters the room at this time it would be so much better if he entered the room um after this character spoke it's there's you have to resist that temptation right and, uh, uh Xi is, is a great writer um but there were um one issue with with chinese books is that they don't really see a publisher they don't there's no there's no famous sorry see an editor there's mm. not really famous editors in China. Even with even with short stories, nobody touches them. So if you're if you're a writer like Jia Pinghua or even Dong Xi, nobody is ever going to say, "Listen, you got to cut pages five, six, and seven. They're, they're, they don't add anything." So there All is right. an urge. There is an urge when you're when you're translating to to act as an editor, mm-hmm. and you can do that to some extent, but you can't. Uh, you can't completely remake the, the damn book. So there's no substantive editing. Is there any line editing, just like proofreading? Uh, yes. Usually there's... Uh, and, and things have to be proofread for political reasons. You know? Right, of course. Yeah. So um, that's basically it. So like when, when, let's say, a big writer like Mo Yan turns a book in, um, nobody is... He's going to do his, his revisions himself. Maybe he'll have somebody... Uh, who works with him, just mm. like his own his own employee or somebody who's who's with like the wherever. But um, when he turns it into the publisher, they're not going to send back suggestions to him, except for perhaps you know proofreading things or or political issues. That's fascinating. Do you know why that is? Um, or do you have a theory? I have no idea and, and no theory really. It's just hmm. it's just been that way for for a very long time, and it's right. and it's almost and almost all levels like for even famous writers down to people who are just putting things out for the first time in in literary journals. Could it be out of a reverence for the author or not wanting the author to lose face? I think that's that's part of it, and also there's just never that just never that that role for. Right. For, for editors um as i say that i i i think of some examples of of literary journals that do um do sort of work with new writers on on their work but otherwise mm. no it just doesn't exist or another theory that's just popped into my head maybe if it's from a time when there was less of a market driven publishing industry you wouldn't have to make changes to the book to make it more consumer friendly could that be it maybe 
Yeah, I, I, I could live with that with that mm. theory. I'm really, yeah. I really have no idea exactly yeah. why, why that's the case. So hello listeners, if you're listening and you're screaming into your um, podcast listening device and you know the answer to this question, um, give us a message on Instagram or Twitter <laughs> or whatever, because yes, we need to get to the bottom of this. Yes. Okay, so I've been quizzing you for, oh my goodness, an hour and 12 minutes, hour and 30 minutes actually. So um, without wanting to take up too much of your time, could you maybe recommend for the listeners um, a translated Chinese book or author that they really ought to investigate? Okay, I mean, I... I Jiapinghua, right? Jiapinghua, but I think, I, I mean, I've said some negative things about Howard Goldblatt, but <laughs> when he's at his best, he's at his best. He's amazing. And I would recommend his translation of... of Zhu uh, Tianwen's um, Notes of a Desolate Man. It's in the original. It's Huang Ren Shouji. It's about. It's translated in 1994, I believe. I also want to say it came out on University of Hawaii Press or Columbia University Press. Mm. It is uh, written by Zhu uh, Tianwen. Uh, she's a Taiwanese woman writer. Um, it's about a uh, basically a gay man watching his partner die of AIDS. It's um, oh. sort of sort of set in 1990s Taipei, uh, at many locations in between. And it's just um, basically the, one of the greatest works of Chinese literature, and it's also one of the greatest translations ever done. Sounds really interesting. That's something I've not. Um... Uh, no, I have I have considered um, Taiwanese authors for the show because um, thing me um, San Mao had her birthday not so long ago and I posted about that, but um, yeah, that could be an interesting first Taiwanese book to look at. Yeah, um, there's a yeah. a new translation of of San Mao coming out coming out very soon, done by uh, my colleague from the Shanghai Literary Review, uh, Mike Fu. He's a he's a very good translator uh, and he's got a, a new San Mao book coming out soon. He got recommended to me by um, one of my old pals from Shanghai, um, Mike Fu. But yeah, the Shanghai Literary Review, I did, when I was living there, I did have some contact with them. I read a story at one of their events, but they couldn't publish it because it was a bit too sensitive. Um, oh dear. But yeah, um, we, might, we might get Mike or someone else from TSLR on the show. That would be cool. I um, also wanted to say what you said about Howard Goldblatt. So I think on the Wang Shua episode, I reference I, I, I cast some aspersions on him, which was stupid because I, I'm not a translator. Um, and also at that time, I didn't know how many, I didn't know he was the Godfather. He was just oh, a yeah. name in my book. Yeah. So yeah, um, the power Goldblatt. If you're listening, we we think you're great. I'm sure he's not listening. I'm sure no. he's uh, sitting like in some beautiful retreat somewhere. Uh, and he's just surrounded by translations he completed many years ago, waiting for them to be published and for the royalty checks to come in. Well, good for him. Hell yeah, good for him. Yeah, okay. So on that note, thank you so much for um, for spending so much time on the show. I'll probably make this a separate episode from the Dingling episode just because it's um, so lengthy. It's going to out-length anything I can say about Miss Sophie's Diary. So this will be episode uh, eight, I think. All right, wonderful. And please okay. cut me saying anything offensive. Oh, yeah, anything that will get you off to um, Tokyo jail or China jail will be out, don't worry. Thank you. Okay, so toodaloo, enjoy your day. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.
So there we go, the man himself, Dylan Levi King. Thank you so much, Dylan, for coming on to the show and having such a fab chat. I really enjoyed that. And I'm looking forward to getting more uh, people on the show. Uh, pretty much anyone can come on, by the way. I'm not just hoping to talk to translators, people from publishing houses and authors. I'd also just welcome anyone who enjoys reading books from China. If you've got a book you'd like to talk about, send me a message, we can discuss it. If you want to just dictate an episode, then if you can uh, donate 20 USD to the Patreon or the Buy Me A Coffee, you're the boss for one episode. You get to take over. But in any case, please do reach out. Um, I'd love to chat with people. If you want to be on the show, I'd love to get you on. I have a few ideas for what the next episode is going to be. I'm going to deliberate on what those are, and then I will announce ahead of time on the Instagram. So remember, that's Trichific. That's where you can find out all news about the show and upcoming episodes. Go follow it. And if you're not on Instagram, well, you really should be, because my goodness, it's 2019. Come on, what are you doing? Come on. Anyway, thank you so much. That's all for today. Our longest episode yet is now over. Tai Jian. <laughs> <laughs>